Welcome to the Global Movements Podcast. I'm James Marriott. Today I'm talking in person here actually in Oslo to Dr. Garvin Walsh. Dr. Walsh is the founder of Brexit Analytics and a former national and international security policy advisor to the UK Conservative Party. He has worked in public policy for over 12 years across a range of sectors, including foreign policy, Europe, Brexit, defence, energy, environment, education, criminal justice and transport, focusing on policy development and strategic political advice. He holds a PhD from the University of Manchester and was selected from thousands for a prestigious European Union Max Weber Fellowship. He writes a regular column for Conservative Home and has written for The Economist and The Guardian. He's also a contributor to CNN and Foreign Policy. He's written many speeches and ghostwritten several books and has addressed conferences in the UK, Europe, Latin America and the Middle East. Garvin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to at the moment. Well, what we're doing in Brexit Analytics is trying to um, bring a bit of a quantitative edge to Brexit um, policy. Uh, we find that a lot of people, particularly in the financial markets, are struggling to understand the political process, basically because they can't put a number on it. So we've now launched a um, joint venture with another company, Blonde Money, and we're working together to provide funds, current currency traders and other people with a mathematically rigorous insight into British Brexit politics and essentially where the wind's blowing at the moment. Putting a number on a financial a number on things which are essentially political and uh, subject to the winds of change. Is 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 that a, a real process that you can you can demonstrably prove that Brexit will mean this much? <laughs> I think because a lot of the forecasts yeah, yeah. have been wrong yeah. so far. In fact, right in wrong. fact, almost all of the, all of the political forecasts are wrong. We're not going to be able to tell you what is going to happen, but we are going to be able to tell you who's got the upper hand in the domestic political debate at the moment. So this means um, if the political debate continues on in the way it's going now, you'll be able to see whether we're headed more towards a Norway-style EEA solution, a Canada-style free trade agreement, or the deep blue sea of a, a chaotic no deal. And that could mean a big difference to the bottom line of uh, companies involved. That makes a, a big difference to um, exporters, to service providers, to banks, um, and if it's a, you know, a chaotic no deal outcome, actually, to everybody um, in the UK and Ireland, particularly. And likely to hit jobs. Presumably, yes. Though what usually happens in the UK, because it's got a very flexible labour market, is not so much a long term effect on employment rates, so much as a long term effect on the wage bill. People lose jobs and they'll get other ones that are um, less well paid and less skilled as the economy adjusts. Um, you've seen that. You saw that in the 2008 recession, and I think what, you're more likely to see that kind of effect than a jobs jobs effect. People will still do stuff. They'll just do stuff that makes them less money than it, it did before. The UK's had a chronic productivity problem for a long time, and a lot of analysts have said that part of the reason is due to the influx of cheap workers from the East. Uh, Eastern European countries since 2004. Do you think that Brexit is likely to push up wage bills and mean that companies are going to invest more in uh, technology? Well, there's, there's, there's no evidence that um, the influx of workers has pushed, pushed down on wage bills. There was one study that showed that, and that um, calculated an effect am amounting to one penny an hour. 
you also you also have other other cont- countries that are in the EA that have higher levels of immigration and haven't uh, the same productivity problems. So that suggests the source of the productivity problem for the UK um, lies elsewhere. It's also something that's been going on in the UK for about 100 years. No one's entirely sure why the UK is really bad at productivity. Something's got to do with its very low investment rate. And a short-termist approach to um, uh, taking profits... Well, I don't know. America seems to have a short-termist approach to taking pro- profits, very similar corporate governance to the UK, but um, manages to keep R&D high and investment high. Maybe this is to do with the tax system structure. Maybe this has got, just got to do with the British culture. The, uh, corporate taxes are famously high in America and, and income taxes are relatively low. I mean, that would that would be an explanation. So if corporate taxes are low, what you tend to want want to do is take the money out of the company as quick as possible. You have no incentive to... Um, keep it in there and uh, invest so that you can get a smaller share of a larger pie in the future rather than a bigger share of a smaller pie straight away. Again, though, um, it's worth seeing whether other low, low corporate tax jurisdictions like Ireland have the same problem. We'll talk about Ireland uh, in a bit and what that means for Brexit. I'd like you to um, say what you were doing for the Brexit campaign. Uh, I understand you are on the Remain side. Yes, that's right. So I was um, writing speeches, designing messaging, writing software to target voters. Um, And uh, in the last couple of weeks of the campaign, I was organizing tours by the cabinet around the country because the last couple of weeks, you don't need um, brains, you need bodies on deck and you need to get people all around talking to voters and um, meeting people and getting a message throughout the country. Why did that message fail? Uh, I think the, the biggest one was 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 strategic. So Cameron was at was outmaneuvered by the Brexiteers into holding a an impropitious and badly advised referendum. Um, they got him to say, "I need concessions, and if I don't get these concessions, I'm going to campaign to leave rather than stay." That undermined our main argument, which was to say that this organisation was um, good; we should stay in it, and it would be a disaster if we leave. Given that Cameron had threatened threatened to leave himself a few months beforehand, we couldn't make that point with any credibility. And in the long, in the longer term, actually, having make having had ten years of saying it's a crap organisation, but we've got to live with it, um, doesn't put you in a very strong position to say it's absolutely essential uh, to stay in, or um, it risks risks calamity. So, they, you think there should have been a much more positive case made for the benefits of the European Union, rather than saying we've got about the best deal we're going to get. We could have said, you know, on balance, look, there's pluses and minuses. It's a realistic organisation. I don't think it would have been practical or feasible to launch a full-throated blue-flagging pro-European campaigning, not least because the Conservative Party, um, even the apparently pro-European side of it, wouldn't, wouldn't have worn it. But a campaign that says, look, it's a realistic institution. What are alternatives? This is this is a good institution to be in. Um, outside, we don't. We're not going to get so many of those advantages. Um, even you know, on immigration, we've got pluses and minuses. But on balance, it, it's worthwhile. Once we retreated to saying freedom of movement is a price we pay for single market access, we'd basically lost lost the argument. And that argument on freedom of movement was arguably lost by the Remain campaign, the message did go out to people that wages are being hurt. You mentioned well, was only one study that showed that to be the case, whereas the others didn't show that to the case. But 
the widespread belief amongst the public was quite different. Yes, and it was and it was quite different because the government, with the, the other side of its operations, was promoting that message. Um, it said immigration's a problem; we've got to bring it down to a hundred thousand. And if you say that, then why have freedom of movement? So you can't you can't defend um, unrestricted immigration from the EU while also saying you want you want to restrict it because you think it's a bad thing. People see through that kind of nonsense very easily. Tony Blair has been quite vocal um, <laughs> since the referendum outcome, hoping to be one of the people that couldn't stop Brexit. His uh, idea is that there would be significant concessions from the European Union, particularly on free freedom of movement. Cameron couldn't get those concessions. Is Blair living in cloud cuckoo land there? Blair is indeed living in cloud cuckoo land, absolutely. We didn't get the concessions when we were in, we're not going to get them when we're out. Even if those concessions had been possible, they would have been very dangerous because bringing a, a freedom of movement as an issue to be changed opens up big divisions in the EU between... It would have been between Britain, the Netherlands, possibly Sweden on the one hand, who might be interested in restricting it, and um, Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, who are quite keen on maintaining it, because they are the immigrant-sending countries, and they see this as part of European solidarity, explaining to them why they should keep having their budget deficits, but denying their people the right to at least work in the places where there is employment at a particular time, when, other con- when their countries are suffering from recession, it's going to be very hard sell to them. If there is this, as has been suggested by some, that's being coordinated with people like Andrew Adonis, um, <coughs> Mandelson, Blair, um, in alliance with Juncker to stop Brexit, do you think that's a realistic activity that's actually going on or is this just being cooked up? Well, the, the activity is realistically is going on. I think the alliance with Juncker is being cooked up. Um, I, European countries are much clearer that they they want to preserve the integrity of the single market over allowing Britain back in. Their their position is that if Britain wants to change its mind, it can change its mind, but they're not going to let Britain back in without it changing its mind. And this effort by Blair and Adonis and um, Clegg as well. Um, Clegg Clegg writes in his in his book. Um, well, we need the EU to reform so that everyone, including Britain, can be happy with it. And the question that is why, if Britain isn't happy with it, Britain can leave. There's no you know, the universe doesn't have to be arranged that Britain has to be a member of the EU. If Britain feels for its own reasons, its own history, that it wants to go a different way, that's fine. You know, I, I, I opposed it, but this isn't some kind of cosmic attack on identity. It's just that Britain has a different different history, a different sense, in, sense of itself, a different sense of identity, a different attitude to immigration. It comes with consequences, but Britain can, you know, adapt to those consequences. Well, let's talk about what those consequences would mean. The cabinet has been famously divided over what kind of Brexit uh, should be um, pursued, what kind of deal should be the outcome. The EU has been waiting for the Conservative Party to make up its mind. Uh, they've come out with a fairly clear statement from the away day that was held a couple of weeks ago. Theresa May made this speech. That went down quite well with the Conservative Party. But do you think that speech will make any headway in Brussels? The, tr- the trouble is that Britain still seems to want, um, as the phrase is, the famous phrase, to have its cake and eat it. It wants its ideal Brexit outcome is um, to have free movement of goods, services, and capital, but not people, to pay less into the EU budget than it's currently paying, 
and to be able to um, veto European laws um, when they, you know, at at, at will. That that series of um, measures is compatible with a kind of European Union. It's just compatible with a kind of European Union whose only member is the United Kingdom. The UK keeps up the liberal trading elements of the of the EU against the the more uh, statist minded parts and represented perhaps by France. Who's going to keep the flag flying for uh, that kind of Europe after the UK leaves? Yeah, it's it's going to be um, initially harder for a sort of Celtic Nordic group of countries, if you like, on their own without without the UK. Uh, I mean, they're not they're not insignificant. If you look at um, the GDP of um, Belgium, uh, sorry, the Netherlands, Ireland, and the Nordic countries, you're getting something like you know almost twice the size of Russia. You know, that's a um, you, that that group together is at least the size of you know Italy. Not in population, but in economic terms, it's quite a, it's quite a sizable it's quite a sizable block. Um, yes, it's not as powerful as it would be with the UK. Um, and that means it's going to have to find other alliances. Some alliances will be possible with Germany. Others will also be possible because we're seeing a bit of a change in the politics of um, France and Spain. Um, Macron is much more liberal than any fr- previous French president. Sure, he's still a French president. And we've seen things like the Saint-Lazare shipyard affair. Um, but he wants to move the French economy explicitly in a more northern European direction. So there's the there's, there's, there's scope there. In Spain, we're now seeing the Ciudadanos party um, topping the polls. And they're also another explicitly liberal party. So there will be other, there will be other forces for a more liberal kind of Europe that are emerging. Um, they won't replace Britain with its deep wells of um, liberal expertise and tradition. But it's not clear even that British politics is now still in that direction. So even if Britain were in and led by Jeremy Corbyn, it might suddenly become a hyper-statist, far-left Britain uh, making alliances with Syriza and Greece and rather than the traditional free-trading, um, op- open economy Britain that we'd become used to since Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister. I'd certainly like to talk a bit about Jeremy Corbyn, uh, particularly with this response to the recent attack in Salisbury, but let's just stay on the Brexit negotiations for a bit longer. Sure. What do you think has been achieved so far? What should our final outcome look like? What would be something that would satisfy the majority of the country? Is it is that even possible? I think the one way to satisfy the majority of the country would be for a British leader to say, look, um, this was a close result. It's clearly a result for leaving, but only a 4% in it. And we know that a lot of that depends on turnout. The country is divided 50-50. I think what we need to do from that is move a little bit further out than we were before. And we need to find something that will essentially leave everyone equally unhappy. And the arrangement that um, exists here in Norway, um, with, for Irish border reasons, also the customs union, would have been a way to do that. Um, but you would need a prime minister who would openly openly say this is a suboptimal arrangement, it's a compromise, but it's the only thing to, to keep the country together. Instead, Theresa May chose to go down the other route, chose a hard Brexit, um, chose to tie herself to the leave um, colours, and as a result, has perpetuated the divisions rather than trying to, pa- to paper them over. That's a choice she's made. It's a choice Britain's going to have to live with. 
at this stage, particularly because Jeremy Corbyn is quite keen to um, allow that um, allow that path to continue. And famously, the big sticking point on a kind of EU arrangement for the UK is freedom of movement. Switzerland has accepted it, so has Norway, uh, and therefore you can't be within that kind of economic sphere unless you accept freedom of movement. That's been the message from Brussels. Is there any possibility of uh, the UK getting a Norway-style arrangement without accepting freedom of movement? No, <laughs> um, and I, I, I want you know this, this, the need to repeat this is so much. I, I, wa- I want to set up a Twitter bot that just finds people suggesting it and replies to them automatically, saying, "No, this is part of the single market, and that's that. You can choose." And British uh, public opinion says it's willing to choose the single market over um, um, having immigration restrictions if it has to choose. It keeps saying this in polls about sixty forty. Yet it votes the other way in a referendum. Public opinion polls, as we know, are um, confusing, and it depends a lot on what the question's asked. But part of what might be doing the work there is some sense of identity and arrangements. So if Britain can get out of the foreign policy bits, get out of the identity of the European Union, get out of the um, justice and armed affairs elements, then that could work. Of course, here's, here the Prime Minister is a problem, because the only bits she wants to be in are the justice and home affairs bits. She just she doesn't really care about other things. Uh, so we have all these pieces somehow conspiring to create the messiest possible Brexit. You're an Irish citizen, and I imagine you feel very strongly about the um, <coughs> prospects for continuing peace in Ireland. Uh Brexit places that at risk. I think everyone acknowledges that, which is why it's become such a sensitive issue over the border. But the issue appears to have been grabbed by Brussels as a way of holding the negotiations uh, hostage uh, by saying that their backstop situation would be for Northern Ireland to remain within the customs union, even if the United Kingdom left, something which... Uh, no Prime Minister would accept, as Theresa May said. Perhaps Jeremy Corbyn might, but... Uh, well, Theresa May said no Prime Minister would accept after having accepted it herself um, in December. Did she not realise what she was accepting? I, th- I think that's the problem. It was four in the morning. They were knackered. It had been a um, really intense week. She has a very small team, and they just don't have the capacity to do that and run the country. So one of, one, up, not conspiracy. Yeah, I mean, one of the advantages that the EU has in this process is they have a whole team of people dedicated solely to Brexit. Whereas people running Britain have to run the rest of Britain as well as Brexit. And Theresa May has a very um, tight team working on a very small number of people. And both her political staff and her officials tend to keep everything to themselves. So it, it just probably they were just overwhelmed and should have asked for more time. I mean, the EU was... Is the, is the EU being cynical in using this as leverage? We're sitting here in Norway. We have a border with Sweden... Cars drive back and forth all the time without any kind of uh, need to stop. Obviously, the EU has very different rules on uh, things like the importation of agricultural products. And Norway has very heavy um, uh, import tariffs on agricultural products because it's not in the EU. But in reality, most of the importation is done electronically. There is very little need for actual physical infrastructure at the border. So 
There is a technical solution to this problem. Why is it being made a, such a strong political issue? Is it due to the history of conflicts? It's exactly due to the history of conflict. It's also partly technical because they're not, they're not entirely um, separable um, because the Northern Irish border is much more complicated and wiggly and it's far more crossings than the um, Sweden-Norway border. They're just like, they're, they're things like fields crossing individual <laughs> crossing borders and villages split between, between the two sides and, you know, roads going back and forth. And they're, um, it, it's not that you couldn't secure the border because it was done during the troubles, but it required quite heavy infrastructure to do so. And the issue, the, the issue is that, um, if there were going to be, um, security cameras, then people would attack them and then you'd have to fortify them and you'd have a cycle of increasing um, security reasons. Now, just because terrorists will stop something is not a reason not to do it. It's a reason to incorporate this into the plans and work out what security measures would be proportionate. However, uh, the view from Dublin is this is an entirely arbitrary British decision and um, is not is not required by Brexit, is only required by the particular form of Brexit that is being tried and specifically by the coalition deal with the DUP. A majority of the population in Northern Ireland are actually in favour, and including a majority of Unionists and Protestants, are in favour of having an Irish sea border in order to keep the North-South border open. It is purely the Democratic Unionist Party's MPs in Westminster, not even the Democratic Unionist Party's people in Northern Ireland, um, who are... Doing so, this. So this is like a double cock up. Cock up number one was DUP co coalition. Right. Cock up number two was agreeing something at four in the morning that Friday that is incompatible with the DUP co coalition. At so, some point, one of these things is going to have to break. But why are the DUP so pro Brexit? If uh, the, if you if you say the majority of their, even their voters are not pro Brexit, well, the, D the DUP have about thirty seven percent of the vote. They were a sort of pro Brexit party, but they were pro Brexit without a hard border. Um, but the DUP is divided between the Northern Irish section of the DUP that is quite keen to get on with running Northern Ireland, um, diverting resources, um, from various, from the UK and the Republic and the EU to its, to its communities. They have this clientelist operation. And then the, <coughs> the people in, um, Westminster who are essentially kicked upstairs. The new generation of more moderate DUP leaders want to say, look, we want to get on with stuff. You can have nice sinecures of Westminster. You can swan around the bars of Parliament. But basically, uh, we're running the show now. But that didn't uh, take into fact the parliamentary arithmetic, which now means these guys suddenly have a lot more influence. And they've been hanging around with lots of Brexiteers. So they believe lots of stuff that isn't necessarily that, that realistic about how problems could, could be addressed. And you've got people. You know, you've got people on the sort of extreme side of that, like Sammy Wilson, and um, compared to more, even more moderate DUP people like Jeffrey Johnson or Arlene Foster herself, or many of whom left the Ulster Unionist Party to join the DUP as part of Northern Ireland Irish politics about talk, 10 talk, years ago. Talk a little bit about the power sharing agreement in Stormont. Yeah. The phase one agreement that Britain and the EU came to um, includes a recognition by London that. Northern Ireland could choose to allow the UK, or to allow Great Britain, sorry, to um, have its own independent trade policy um, while still having no hard border. For those who might be listening to the podcast who are unaware, the United Kingdom is the United Kingdom of four nations, which is England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, and Great Britain is those 
uh, well, England, England, Scotland, Scotland and, and Wales. Wales without Northern Ireland. So that, that's the difference. Yeah. Oft, even many uh, foreign leaders use Great Britain when they should use United Kingdom. I mean, foreign leaders often just use England. <laughs> well, yeah. Let's not talk about Trump. <laughs> Actually, I think he said Great Britain the other Yeah, well, France always, in France, it's always l'Angleterre. And there's a sort of honesty about that because England basically runs the show. But, you know, the problem with the UK is that England is too big. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're seeing this in the Brexit process. And that's what's going on is that the, the smaller nations, at least Northern Ireland and Scotland, want quite a different outcome to England. And that conflict is, gonna, is playing itself out partly in, in this way. So the Northern Ireland institutions, um, they have um, a power sharing system so that parties from both communities, unionists and nationalists, have to agree um, on major pieces of legislation and on the formation of an executive. Um, and at the moment, there is a dispute between Sinn Féin and the Ulster Unionists, um, partly to do with um, an Irish Language Act that Sinn Féin have cooked up, uh, partly to do with the results of the reason the Assembly broke, the executive broke down before, which had to do with the DUP diverting too much money from a solar power subsidy. Remember, this is a solar power subsidy scheme in Northern Ireland, well known for its fine mm. sunshine, <laughs> <laughs> um, to its own communities and not enough to Sinn Féin's communities, I suspect. Um, this probably has something to do with um, DUP's communities being rural and the Sinn Féin vote being rather more urban. So there being more spaced, but solar panels right. in. So they give fill fields with uh, yeah, with subsidised panels, and that... if you just have a little house in West Belfast, there aren't many fields to fill your fill with subsidised panels. I don't know. I'm just speculating there, but anyway, there is there is this um, battle, and there are political reasons why Sinn Fein doesn't necessarily want to be part of the executive because Sinn Fein are a bit like Jeremy Corbyn in that they're not very anti Brexit. Mm. They were quite quiet during the um, referendum campaign. Mm. Um, their ideology is a sort of Lexit. Let's, I mean, their their name stands for ourselves alone. In a, in Irish political terms, they're really the Irish UKIP. They're nationalistic, independentist. They don't want much to do with anybody else. Mm. Um, but they also have to temper that because the Irish electorate down south is very pro-European. Let's talk a bit about Italy. Uh, obviously, we had the recent Italian elections. Um, Five Star won those elections in the South. The League won the elections in the North. Uh, it's a fairly crude way of putting it, but you said the result is a split parliament with no sustainable majority for anyone. Five Star are the single largest force with 221 seats, a centre-right coalition of League, Forza Italia and Fratelli d'Italia holds 260 and a centre-left one, 112. But... In reality, a centre-right coalition involving the League would be a very difficult prospect. Well, a centre, it wouldn't be a centre-right... Uh, the League would don't have a majority on their own, and they don't have a majority of their centre-right allies. A coalition with um, five stars is impossible. Um, even, if they're formally, even if they're formally um, going to government for a little while, the fundamental purposes of the two parties are at odds. The League... Um, originally it was called the Northern League. They wanted secession of the North because they thought the South um, were wasting too much taxpayers' money and they wanted rid of them. Um, the, the Movimento Cinque Stelle are a southern regionalist party, essentially, that want more northern resources diverted towards the South. So 
despite superficial agreement on occasional things, they're completely opposed. The League tried tried a sort of conventional European uh, far-right type anti-immigrant nativist populist line, and it did reasonably well in the North, but it failed completely in the South. Why? Because nobody trusted them, because everyone knew they were the Northern League. They knew it would be like the DUP going into um, Catholic areas of uh, Northern Ireland and saying, suddenly we're on your side. No one would believe them, even if they'd renamed themselves. But the only thing they are uh, in agreement on is uh, the League and Five Star, I mean, is the fact that they want to have more deficit spending. And yes. To, to, to breach the, I believe it's 3% cap. Yeah. Uh, that that um, is imposed by the Bund- uh, sorry the European uh, <laughs> Central Bank. The time. Uh, and um, do you think that they will get anywhere with uh, some kind of uh, agreement on that pushed perhaps along by Macron? Uh, it's not obvious that that they would. It's not obvious that Macron would want to help them. But he he has he has spoken about. Setting up more um, fiscal, uh, well, uh, fiscal sharing. Yeah, I mean, on, say, I um, mean, on the on the, um, you know, on the substance of fiscal policy, it's needed, and the the caps are too low, and you need much more flexibility. But um, the only way to get this is really a, a trade for fiscal flexibility in exchange for reform. That's the f- French position. And Macron is showing that he is reforming and as a result can persuade the Netherlands, Germany, Sweden that um, it's worth granting a bit for more flexibility. The problem with um, the Five Star Movement and, and the League is they don't want any kind of reform. And nobody in the end trusts Italy to reform its institutions after being given money because it, that's not what it's done for the previous 20 years. But it could be... Um... I mean, if we are not going to have any kind of government evolving the league or the um, uh, the five star, that would be a very strange kind of a government. Though it certainly would be a, a European government, but it wouldn't also command a majority. Yeah, I think you might end up with sort of a temporary caretaker government in Italy with a minority, then, and the, or might even with the league or with five star and some other people supporting it for a bit. Um, until you had new elections, possibly under a new electoral system. Okay, the, and uh, another new election. The current system. Italian electoral system is... Um, Which requires a constitutional change. Uh, yes. With the current Italian constitutional like, electoral system is also bizarre in that it's proportional, but then you get an arbit- achieve the effects of first-past-the-post by giving the biggest coalition... A boost. Uh, a boost, exactly. Yeah. And no, no, one, no one got the boost this time, which is why we're in... Which, which was intended to, uh, to, yeah. to have a clear outcome. Um, but, it, but, but it didn't. Um, so, yeah, you'll probably have for new elections. In new elections, you, you'll probably see a resurgence of the left because a lot of their voters stayed at home this time. Um, so you might end up with an even more <laughs> impossible parliament with three equal-sized blocks. <laughs> but then, then again, we've had other countries without... And I'm making a slightly facetious argument here. We have other countries that have survived without governments quite well. And one of the advantages of having no governments is they don't they don't have random contentious decisions like holding referenda on EU membership or Belgium famously went for, yes, for a year without for a government. Year, Spain had half a year without a government. Unemployment went down during that period. Um, it's, a, it's a libertarian dream. It is a libertarian. <laughs> well, it's, it's, more, it's more kind of a technocratic dream because these are administrations carry on without you know. 
policy proposals that are radical happening. Meldrum even went to war without the government. <laughs> how, how do you make that decision? I mean, the, so the, the, the caretaker administration put it to Parliament and Parliament voted. Ah. So what you, what you have essentially is a, you, they're really governments without coordinated legislative initiative. So if groups of MPs want to get together and pass legislation, they can, and they can instruct an administration of technocrats to carry the, carry that out. What you don't have is a personally led executive. Maybe there are advantages to that system. I don't know. It's not been... I mean, the Belgian system is so consensual that it often, you know, evolves towards that anyway. Um, the British system is the paradigmatic opposite of that, where you have a, an elected cabinet that's clearly personalized, and you know who it is, and you get rid of one lot and put put another lot in but it's so it's more like the kinds of governments you had in 19th century britain where you had a very strong legislature you had administrations that changed all the time um following the instructions of um a very strong assembly let's talk a little bit about uh technocrat uh ism uh and populism and what's Corbynism might mean for the the UK. We have had a very um, peculiar reaction from Jeremy Corbyn to the Scripple Salisbury attack. Uh, almost all of the UK's traditional allies have been very strong. The USA, France, Germany, all have come out and said there is no plausible alternative explanation. Um, Corbyn has started off with a, uh, a weak position, went to a slightly stronger one and, and rode back again. He seems to be all over the place. What is his fascination and support for Russia? Corbyn is not so much pro-Russian as anti-Western and anti-British. Um, uh, the, the, the clear case of this was during the Falklands War when um, Britain... British territory was attacked by a right-wing Argentine military junta, and instead of supporting uh, his own government, he supported the right-wing military junta. You could call him. This was this was a regime that was killing leftists by the tens of thousands, um, but this didn't stop him supporting them over his own government, which, however much he may have disagreed with him, was not killing leftists um, by the tens tens of thousands. And if it had, I'm sure Jeremy Corbyn would have been on their list. He has he has this. He, he really has a suspicion of the British state and its its institutions. He doesn't trust them at all. Um, you could see this. You could see this in his um, um, bringing up the Iraq War as one of the examples. Though of course he didn't bring up um, Russian intervention in Syria. Um, he just has this single-minded suspicion of the state he aspires to govern. It, it's, a, it's quite an odd um, situation. Where does that come from? And his his origin. What's his origin story? You can trace you can trace them from the seventies um, le- left leftist politics to the first Gulf War in nineteen ninety one, which these people opposed. Uh, pe- you know, it's people like Jeremy Corbyn, Tariq Ali, and um, they they opposed intervention in Bosnia. They opposed intervention in Kosovo. Corbyn himself um, denies that there were any crimes against humanity committed against um, Kosovo, Kosovo people. Are denied whether he still denies it, we don't know. But he hasn't chosen to clarify his position. Uh, <clears throat> they are obviously opposed um, intervention in Afghanistan post 9-11, and they opposed the Iraq war. And they, they treat this record, which was perhaps right once at the very end, 
as a determination of policy. So rather than being stop clocks right, right twice a day, um, they treat it as a vindication um, of a, for a series of um, hostility to any Western military intervention that doesn't extend to non-Western military intervention, which they seem to have no problem with. And um, in the case of non-Western, non-state actors seem to be often quite supportive of. Uh, usually non-state actors beginning with an H. Yes. Um, operate in the Middle East. Our friends. Indeed. Our, our good friends or just a, a friends? I think, it was ha- ju- I think it was just Hamas. friends in, in his defence. Yeah. Um, and so here, I mean, this morning in the Guardian, he just parroted the um, Russian line, which is, mm. oh, could not necessarily us, it could have been someone else. A very strange article. A lot of uh, his own MPs have come out very strongly against him on this. There has been a sort of... Uh, peace since the election that they, they realised, let's say, the, the more centrist, moderate MPs, as they're described in the Labour Party, have been at peace with um, the Corbyn regime, sorry, the Corbyn shadow cabinet, let's say, uh, for, for a while. But now this seems to have been a, a, a point where they are going to diverge very publicly and critically attack Corbyn. What, what do you think that's going to mean for him and what do you think it's going to mean for things such as the speeding up of uh, reselection procedures for... Yeah, I mean, I, think, I don't think it's going to make much difference. He's just going to carry on as it, as it was. Um, the British public are, of course, hostile to Putin, but don't terribly care. If you ask if you ask someone in the pub, you know, oh, former Russian spy was killed by Russians, they'll probably shrug their shoulders and think, oh, well, it shouldn't really happen here, but, you know, this is the kind of thing that spies <coughs> get up to, as long as Putin doesn't do anything that actually threatens the day-to-day life of British people, it'll be hard to uh, mobilise anger significantly. Talk about conservative radicalism, then, in those contexts. Well, it's, 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 it's Brexit, particularly. And Brexit is unknown. It's uncosted. It's a big leap into the dark, as we used to say, used to say, used to say in the campaign. And that means that if you're the kind of middle of the road person who votes Tory because you don't want to see change and you're actually doing quite okay, um, you don't particularly have, want to vote for them. You may not particularly want to vote for Corbyn either, but, um, certain people are just saying, well, we've had this lot in power. That seemed they, in their view, have messed up. So let's give the other lot a shot. And people are willing to overlook a lot of Corbyn's stuff about Venezuela and other things which they dismiss as eccentricity. A mistake, I think, but they nevertheless are willing to overlook it. Though perhaps the IRA uh, links or sympathies, let's say, not necessarily links, would have a bit more traction as... as... You'd have thought, but seemingly not. I mean, it's it's had a little bit of effect in certain working-class um, army neighbourhoods. Um, it's one of the reasons the Lib Dems took back Portsmouth South in the election. Um, that plus the student vote going for the Lib Dems, but they didn't, you know, the the army vote didn't vote Labour because of Corbyn. But uh, but that's not but a it huge seems, it seems to be, yeah, <laughs> it's a, a dwindling dwindling one, and after Corbyn gets in, probably further dwindling. Can we just talk a little bit about? Um, I'm not sure if you saw the uh, the US also came out uh, with stronger sanctions on Russia due to what it considers cyber attacks on key infrastructure. Um, and this this is something which is very interesting because the um, the, the attacks on the Iranian um, centrifuges were, of course, um, coordinated by uh, the, the, um, the Americans and successfully managed to destroy um, quite a few of those centrifuges with 
Stuxnet, I think it's Stuxnet. Stuxnet's one. Uh, this is obviously something that Russia is doing, not necessarily actively um, uh, activating these kind of uh, protocols, but perhaps just testing the limits of how far it can reach and how much damage it can do in terms that's of... Actually, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good way of looking at Russian policy more broadly. Russia, Russia is kind of a fluid. It spreads as far as it can until it meets resistance and then it stops. And so they're probing and, you know, they've done more active stuff like the cyber attack on Estonia a few years ago. They are constantly trying to infiltrate things. Um, and I'm sure... Um, as are the Chinese. Yeah, they're the Chinese. And I, I, I'm sure the Brits and the Americans and the Israelis and everyone else are doing it too. Why, why, why do they appear to be more successful than us? Well, well we reported. <laughs> right, so you, you think this you is know, Western, the, 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 Western the, biased media? This, this is the existence of free media in the West. I mean, it's harder to do things. I think we probably should be doing more. I mean, we should even be doing more to spread true news in Russia. Facebook is available in Russia. Twitter is available in Russia. Where is the Voice of America Twitter bot factory promoting all this um, stuff across Russia? Could do it, but no one's funding it. No one's Unlikely it. with Trump in charge. Unlikely with Trump in charge, but there's no reason why Deutsche Welle couldn't be doing it. Mm, mm, mm. There seems and to be a sort of lack lack of um, agility and thought and going on. You know, where where is, where is, where is part of that the, the dysfunction mm. of the Western alliance at the moment, or it's part of it's the Western alliance not really understanding the nature of the threat. It's probably political leaders who are too old and don't understand how this kind of stuff works. Um, it's um, the, you know, tentacles of corruption that Russia has spread everywhere that all means there's always a voice saying, hey, maybe not, maybe let's not do this. You know, in the UK, it's, it's through estate agents and the property network and people saying, well, you know, let's not, let's not endanger this kind of investment. R- Russia doesn't have the power to prevent Britain pursuing a an anti-Russian policy if Britain wants to. It has the power to affect, affect things at the margins. Um, and its mistake may be doing things that will cause Britain to um, pursue an actively anti-Russian policy. Because Britain's a much bigger economy than Russia. Um, it has more allies than Russia. Um, the argument put about by some Remainers that um, it left Britain isolated, I think, was... Um, Brexit has left Britain isolated. I think it's not really true in this case. No, it, it certainly... You know, the Allies have all yeah. supported Britain. Yeah, it means that certain... Though France did take a bit of a time to get there, but the, they have come out... Yeah, that may have been just, a, you know, the local spokesman was saying this, and right, then, right, 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 right. you know, the, they saw the evidence were like, yeah, this is clear. So the, the, there is no evidence that Brexit is causing a split on, on the policy towards no, Russia. It no, makes, it makes things more inefficient, and it means that European common foreign security policy won't have Britain at the table... Putting, pushing a more anti-Russian position um, when they next decide things. On the other hand, it also means they won't have Corbyn at the table pushing a pro-Russian position, so that might be a wash. Just want to close up by uh, talking about where you see the European Union heading. There's a lot of possible routes it could go down. Brexit looks like we'll get some kind of Brexit deal that's Possibly going to be something a bit like Canada, possibly something a bit like Norway, but, but probably more likely of Canada if if we insist on on yeah the current the current the, the current direction is Canada or Canada Canada for GB and um, Norway Norwayish for Northern Ireland. Is that going to work? Well, is that practical? It's practical. It may not be politically possible, and the current government may not be able to get that through the House of Commons. So there'll be a political crisis at some point. 
Um, but it's practical because you can put, because there, because it's much easier to man a sea border than a, than a land border because there are already ports and there are already buildings there and you can put the infrastructure inside pre-existing sheds and just do what it is and no one really needs to notice. There are already ID checks on flights and boats. So what about the future of the Eurozone? Where, where do you see it ending up in, let's say, five, ten years? Yeah, I mean, the, the question here is whether something can be constructed that gives Germany particularly enough confidence that they're not going to be used as a piggy bank for everybody else. And with the Grand Coalition, there's more chance that might happen because it's not the FDP were more skeptical of that kind of integration than um the, and with the, the social, SPD, democrats, social democrats in there they may in the finance ministry they're, they're willing to this this decision will be taken by the chancellery in the end but it will be it they were willing they may be willing to give a bit more space particularly if france does reform you know if france gets its deficit down and says we don't need this for us we show we're showing people that reform can be possible then you start germany will have to move you know, their relationship with France is such that they're going to have to make concessions if that is the case. Do you think Macron can face down the uh, traditional <coughs> people opposed to that, mainly the trade unions, farmers, to get through? Or do you think he's not going to take on both I mean, farmers and the The thing is, actu- actually, he's benefiting from reforms that Hollande already made. Right. But have taken a few years to take place <laughs> and the upturn in the global economy. So what he'll be able to say is, look, unemployment's down. Uh, our public finances are in better shape. Um, that will allow him to buy off various constituencies and further implement more reforms. But what he's soaking up is not the effect of his own changes, which ha- which haven't come through yet, but Hollande's changes that Hollande got all the stick for. And Macron is well-timed to take the benefit of. What could a deal look like that would satisfy Italy and Germany for the, the future of the euro? Is, is such a thing... Possible. I mean, I don't know about Italy, but France and Germany, you can see things. You can have a common Eurozone fiscal envelope. Uh, you may or may not have a single Eurozone finance minister as a person um, in charge with profile. But that, that would only be significant if there was an actual budget behind it. But, well, uh, I mean, just just a figurehead would be fairly meaningless. Uh, and that's... Well, they'd essentially be an upgraded chair of the Eurogroup if you're looking at a... If, you, if you're looking at a, a minor reforms. I don't think in the short term we're going to move much Beyond that, I think Macron's plans. Macron's plans are extremely interesting. And cool. um, he's talking about building up, you know, pro-European political movements across the Union. He wants to um, break up the existing political structure a bit, um, take the place that you know the collapse of social democracy has left, and the weaker but still existing confusion on the right between a sort of liberal element and nativist element of conservative parties <coughs> everywhere. And, and, he, and he's been quite vocal on immigration in terms of uh, taking a, a, a liberal economic view but combined with a slightly more sceptical view on... On, on external migration. I, I'm rather, so, yeah, rather from that, I'm not I mean, talking, it's the, yeah. There's a sort of... Yeah, I think his, his, his project is a sort of... Um, I mean, it's kind of a European state-building project. Mm. Um, it might be an exaggeration. No, I think it might be an exaggeration um, to say that Macron is thinking that he's only going to be, you know, fifth. What, what will he be? Forty-eight, um, forty-nine when he stops being president of France. He might like something else to go on to. 
and he might like something else to run that is worth running. <laughs> and, and you see him putting in place the kinds of pan-European political organizations to bring about this change, which is where he's different from many other politicians. He sees a long-term aim and then he starts to create political changes to enable the circumstances that would then allow him to take advantage of those political changes to <coughs> put in place. might be too cynical to suggest that he had <coughs> um, given Hollande these damaging but necessary reforms that he could then reap the benefit of himself. I suspect he was looking at a 10-year plan for himself. He thought he'd become president of France in um, 2022 mm. uh, rather than 2017. Yeah. Was 2017, 2016? 2017. Uh, it's not so. Yeah, last year. Yeah, 2017. Um, but, he, you know, he, the luck fell his way and you've got to take your luck when it when it comes. <laughs> this is probably feeding into his um, arrogance or sense of achievement, depending on the way things turn out. History will decide it's one way or the other, depending on events. If he fails, <laughs> the Front National are waiting in the wings and you think there's any... Possibility if a large recession comes out of the blue, if the reforms don't go through, if immigration gets uh, more, more, if it continues to increase, Front National could could win. The Front National are also in a lot of trouble. They're divided. They haven't been able to deal with their their defeat. Their um, um, Marine Le Pen and Marine Maréchal and the Grandad are all falling out. Um, the Philippot, who is the architect of their more moderate line in recent years, is in trouble. Um, I, I don't think the the narrative of there is a populist wave everywhere is true. I think there are populists everywhere, mm. and they're all over Europe and all over the world. Um, the interesting question is how the populists have taken over in Britain and America. Um you know, Theresa May. Would you, would you say Conservative Party in the UK was now a populist party? It certainly was between twenty six, between um, the Citizens of Nowhere speech and the twenty seventeen election. It's now a party divided between populists and moderate conservatives. Much like the Republican Party in well, yeah, the, the Republican Party I think has been decisively Trumpized, whereas May May or um, to be honest, Nick Timothy um, didn't succeed in. Bringing about a decisive. Nick, Nick Timothy, of course, May's former, former special, special advisor, special advisor, and chief of staff, and, and, and <coughs> it took, a sort of national took, took populist by the failure of the, uh, the the campaign, which um, when he masterminded such policies as taxing uh, people's houses away from yes, from yes, care. which which if the conservative the conservative party stands for home ownership, it stands for nothing. <laughs> you know, which all, were wildly unpopular. When I was up, I was up campaigning in these kind of working class labour areas that they were hoping to win win over. And in the early stages of the campaign, people were very supportive. And then this policy came out, and they didn't. The problem is they saw it as a trap, and they saw it as evidence that the Tories were not on their side anymore. Mm. And they, they seemed like too. They didn't understand the detail. They just seemed like too complicated a scheme. It was really messy. I got. I mean, that is something that should have been done carefully. This is cross-party like by, cross by a national commission, yeah, rather than uh, stuck into manifesto last minute. I mean, it's actually a good policy. Uh, well, and yeah, that and uh, grammar schools are the two policies of Nick Timothy's I agree with, but they're not popular. Uh, no, um, so well, grammar schools limited popularity, perhaps uh, depends. I suppose where you live and <laughs> what school system uh, you're living under. Um, Garvin, I think. I've got to let you go. You're, you're uh, speaking at a conference later today, yep. I understand. Yep. What, are, what are you going to be talking um, about? I'm going to be talking about 
European security policy and particularly because of the week that's in it, Russia, and how to develop what in the jargon is a comprehensive approach to counter Russian um, interference and trolling of Europe as a whole. You know, how you can focus on, you know, how you focus not just on defense, where there's actually fairly well-established instruments through through NATO, and not just on energy, where there's quite a strong policy response, but also an ideological element, a, a new media element, and an anti-corruption element. Because, you know, Ru- Russia is very much the weaker party here, but it, it uh, takes advantage of vulnerabilities and the fact that all these policies happening in uh, lots of different silos and no one's then directing it against Russia. I think we've had a lot of talk about instruments of policy um, after Brexit and how you plug in the British and lots of us have done work on that. But we really start to think about agendas as well. And if this attack has done anything, perhaps it will galvanise people into uh, doing something more against Russian uh, pernicious influence. Yes, yes, we hope it will. I mean, it's a bit like Russia does this from time to time. You know, they, they were, things were going quite well. They were getting their way in the Minsk, Minsk Accords um, over Ukraine, and then they shot down that um, airliner over, over Ukraine, and everyone went, hold on a minute, and completely flipped the Dutch position. Mm. So uh, Russian overreach is... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what Russia does is just they're, having, they, they're trying an awful lot of stuff, and some of it works, some of it doesn't. What they don't necessarily have is any systematic... And control over what things to try and what not to try. I, I presume they do try and learn lessons, but you had examples like the attack on the American base in Syria um, by Russian private military contractors, but linked to the Kremlin. And you can see, um, well, they were just blown out of the sky by the Americans. I mean, two, 200, 200 dead in one, one detachment, tens of dead in another. The Americans took no casualties. Ooh. It was a very clear message, you know, we know exactly what you're doing, don't try this again. And they probably won't. Whether Britain is able to, well, not so much whether Britain is able to, whether Britain is willing to have such a response to Russia is another matter. I mean, they they do, they are custodians of an awful lot of Russian money. They could um, enforce the existing anti-money laundering powers they have against people associated with the Russian regime. And potentially bring in new legislation... And they can amend. There's a legislation going through, so they just need to amend existing legislation. Um, that's easy, easily done. A freeze assets. They could already. They can already do it with the um, what are they called? Um, unexplained wealth orders. Yeah, right. They don't even need new powers. They need new powers. They probably just need to use them, existing ones. So it's you know it's an administrative and policy decision. They could make things very difficult if they wanted to. Um, and the effect on the, well, the prime property market in London is falling anyway. So, ironically, one of the, it's a one thing, although Corbyn himself is pro Russian, doesn't want to do anything in the military sphere, he probably would do this stuff <laughs> because he doesn't like rich people who happen, some of whom happen to be Russian, and he doesn't really care about hitting them if they are Russian. In that sense, in that sense he's not actually a Russian stooge. He's an anti Western ideologue and will, um, take the decisions as, as he takes them. Garvin, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. This is absolutely fascinating, and I look forward to speaking to you next time. Yeah, thank you, and I look forward to seeing you soon.